0: Picture the scene. A high-ranking member of the United States government is making a speech in a crowded shopping mall. Suddenly, gunmen appear in the crowd and open fire on the official's security team. In the chaos that follows, the official and several of the crowd are taken hostage, and the last thing anyone sees of either the official, the other hostages, or the gunmen, is them speeding away in a van. The U.S. intelligence and security services are at a complete loss. Somehow these gunmen have managed to evade every traditional security measure put in place to allow the U.S. authorities to identify possible terrorists within U.S. borders. The hostage takers planned everything down to the most minute detail, allowing them to quite literally disappear with their hostages so they can make their demands. They warn that if their demands are not met within 24 hours, then they will begin executing the hostages. With no leads, the US president turns to one of the most classified departments within the CIA and demands their assistance. Before the 24 hours is up, the US authorities know where the hostages are being kept, how many terrorists are guarding them, and where they are positioned so that when the US Navy SEALs carry out their rescue, they are able to do so with maximum efficiency and zero casualties amongst the hostages. The outcome of this fictional scenario was viewed as the ultimate goal of a small group of forward-thinking individuals within the United States' intelligent communities who, beginning in the early 1970s, began research into the possibility of using psychics to gather intelligence on US adversary. If successful, then the possibilities for psychic spies and even psychic warriors who could kill an enemy soldier with their minds were limitless. The end results of America's investigation into psychic warfare have been largely criticized and mocked by the mainstream media and government. While behind closed doors, whispers have been repeated of success stories and that despite officially ending in 1995, a branch of the US government continues to investigate psychic phenomena and may have even utilized psychics in operations as recently as in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. This is the story of Operation Stargate. Psychic phenomena concerns the belief that some individuals have an additional sense to their core five senses we all possess, namely sight, touch, sound, taste, and smell, known as extra sensory perception, but more commonly abbreviated to the ESP. This additional sense can take on several forms, such as telepathy. The ability to transmit information from one mind to another without communicating, using any of the traditional senses. Branching off from telepathy is telekinesis. Whereas telepathy concerns the transmission of information, telekinesis involves using psychic abilities to directly interact with the physical world, such as making objects move without physically touching them. Then there is the phenomena of remote viewing where one is able to perceive or observe events taking place sometimes thousands of miles away. If such abilities as these could be first proven and then perfected, their military application would be obvious. Telepathy or remote viewing could allow soldiers to not only detect the presence of the enemy, but know everything about their unit, including how many soldiers they have and what weapons and tactics they plan to use. The psychic soldier could therefore advise his commander how best to alter their own tactics. Psychic spies could also gather information from high-ranking foreign officials when they are in a public place without suspicion. Alternatively, a psychic with telekinetic capabilities could assassinate an enemy agent by disrupting their heart or brain functions without leaving any evidence behind. The realm of ESP goes even further, touching upon precognition. The ability to see the future, and alternatively, and perhaps just as important, retrocognition, the ability to see into the distant past. Psychometry is another aspect and concerns the ability to read information about a person or place by touching a physical object. Finally, there is, of course, mediumship, which relates to communicating with the dead. The problem with ESP is that psychic phenomena is not yet recognised by traditional branches of science. There is no reliable scientific method with which to truly measure ESP abilities that can conclusively prove its existence. Perhaps the most well-known experiments to measure ESP are the Zerner cards, such as those used by Bill Murray's character at the beginning of the 1984 movie Ghostbusters. Designed by perceptual psychologist Carl Zener in the 1930s, Zener cards are a deck of 25 cards made up of five different simple symbols of which there are five of each in the whole deck. The experimenter holds up the card with a symbol facing away from the person being tested for ESP, who has to try and perceive what symbol is on the card. This test has come to symbolize the search of ESP, despite being largely dismissed by the wider scientific community as ineffectual since the examiner can sometimes subconsciously hint at what cards they are holding. Typically, people get three to seven correct, while only 10% of those tested get any number over eight correct. The chances of getting over 20 correct is one in five billion. But if ESP is real, then surely this would be possible to achieve. However, those who believe in ESP argue that if it's something beyond the core five senses, then science would understandably have a hard time detecting it. Ultraviolet light was not detected until 1801 and yet it was all around us, all of the time. So why not ESP? If ESP was proven to be real somehow, it would completely alter our perception of how we interact with the universe and have a profound impact on society and religion. Could someone with telepathy talk to God, for example? There have been numerous cases of possible ESP abilities manifesting throughout history that seem to defy all logic and statistical probability which is why we as human beings are still so fascinated by the subject, despite science telling us that it's a myth. Take the case of Leonard Dore, who wrote crosswords for the Daily Telegraph newspaper during World War II. In one of his crosswords, he included the French port of Dieppe, which at the time was under Nazi occupation. Just 24 hours later, the Allies raided the port. Was this just a coincidence, or did law unknowingly tune into the thoughts of Allied commanders? While two years later, Law repeated this feat in spectacular fashion, when his crosswords included code words for the D-Day landings before they actually took place. Despite investigations and claims by Law that they were random words chosen by students at the school where he worked, no one could explain how he just randomly came up with these code names on the eve of the invasion. As to his students picking the words, did he unknowingly influence their choices? The problem with examining cases such as Law is that they are of limited use to scientists because they occur in an uncontrolled environment and cannot be replicated. In order to effectively demonstrate something with hard evidence, scientists need to conduct structured laboratory experiments with closely controlled conditions. And even in the early 20th century, it wasn't just scientists working on the fringes of their profession who invested in research to do just that, but governments as well. There have been many examples in military history of leaders who have been said to have an uncanny ability to predict the movements of enemy forces, but often this is down to a combination of experience and intelligence. But it was during the Second World War that a modern major combatant began to truly look into trying to harness ESP as a tool of war with a degree of scientific investigation. On the surface, Nazi Germany appeared to be a state centered around the pursuit of science, as opposed to the metaphysical, but away from public view, they invested a great deal of money and resources into the investigation of the occult and psychic abilities. The leader of the feared SS himself, Heinrich Himmler, was especially invested in exploring this idea, creating special projects to investigate ESP abilities based on ancient writings from from texts looted from occupied lands. Arguments range among historians over how successful these experiments were, since much of what was documented was lost in the collapse of the Nazi regime. However, although evidence was uncovered after the war by the United States and the Soviet Union to convince both countries to more closely consider the possibility of ESP abilities existing. According to investigative journalist Annie Jacobsen in her book, Phenomena, the United States began to receive intelligence in the early 1950s, that the Soviet Union were not only building on the research carried out by the Nazis, but had actually demonstrated some extraordinary successes, particularly in the field of telekinesis. Information began to be collected by American intelligence agencies, who claimed that a Soviet psychic by the name of Ninl Kulagina, was able to stop various animals' hearts from beating using her mind powers. There were also claims that Soviet psychics were using their powers to brainwash prisoners into recruiting Communist Party propaganda. While US intelligence services were understandably skeptical, in the 1950s and 60s, when paranoia surrounding the Soviet Union's intentions towards the West were at an all-time high, some branches of the US government began to take these Soviet experiments more seriously and eventually demanded research into not only countering Moscow's psychic spies, but also developing their own. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons... Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9pm Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. In 1961, the CIA reached out to parapsychologist Stephen I. Abrams an American who at the time was heating up the parapsychological laboratory at Oxford University in the UK. They asked him directly if there was any merit to the claims of ESP, and whether the supposed Soviet successes were real or not. Abrams responded that ESP appeared to be a real phenomena, but to his knowledge, there was no way to understand, or perhaps more importantly, control it. Throughout the 1960s, the US monitored Soviet research as best they could, However, it would not be until the 1970s that the US formulated their own official counter to Soviet efforts after it was learned that the Soviet Union had spent 60 million rubles over three years on what they termed psychotronic research. This vast sum of money combined with some of the earlier claims led to the US intelligence community to suspect that the Soviet Union must surely be meeting with success. Otherwise, why would so much money continue to be spent? American research efforts had been re-energized thanks to work carried out at the Stanford Research Institute by two physicists, Dr. Russell Targ and Harold Putoff. Like the CIA, Putov had learned of Soviet research into ESP, and even possessed footage of a Soviet psychic supposedly moving objects with his mind. The CIA approved them and began discussing the possibility of working together with the Stanford Institute to develop America's psychic spy program. After they had undergone background and security checks, including polygraph tests about themselves and their work. During the early work in 1972, Targan put off work with several people who claimed to be psychic, including the Israeli born Yuri Geller. Geller would later become one of the most famous and certainly controversial psychics in the world. But in 1972, he represented a problem for the CIA. The CIA had concerns about his possible links to the Israeli government and there was doubt over his authenticity, so he was not included in the forthcoming project. One man who was, however, was Ingo Swann. Swan was especially eager to prove that he and people like him possessed ESP abilities, and in particular, the ability to perceive places and objects potentially thousands of miles away. While working in New York with the American Society of Psychical Research, He coined the phrase, remote viewing, to describe this ability. Hearing about Targ and Putov's research, Swan contacted them a few months before they were approached by the CIA. Together with the Stanford team, Swan helped develop the concept of coordinate remote viewing, whereby a remote viewer would be given map coordinates and would then have to perceive what was there using nothing but their own psychic abilities. The advantage for the researchers of this method is that any site could be picked and then investigated after the remote viewing session to assess how successful the session was. As a result, the researchers themselves couldn't be accused of deliberately or unintentionally leading the person who was doing the remote viewing, as many skeptics had criticized previous methods of doing such as the aforementioned Xena cards. Unfortunately, early results were mixed, but in some of the more successful tests, Swan proved he was capable of extraordinary accuracy. In one of the early tests, Targ and an associate left the building where Swan was located and asked to see if he could describe their location. Swan was not only able to see that Targ was standing by a fountain, but also that on this particular day, the fountain had been turned off. No one, not even Put-Off knew where Targ and his associate had gone. For the CIA, the possibility of harnessing such abilities was enough to encourage them to sponsor a full investigation into remote viewing, centering on Putoff, Swan, and Targ's work. Thus, the CIA authorized Project Scanate, or scan by a coordinate, and invested $50,000 in further research, approximately $287,000 in today's money. Swan, however, was initially told that the investment was from a scientist located on the east coast who was interested in their work and not the CIA. The involvement of the CIA would eventually put Targ and Putoff into contact with Sidney Gottlieb, a noted chemist who during the 1950s and 60s was a leading figure in the CIA's now notorious mind control program known as Project mk Ultra. Sidney was fascinated with the work into remote viewing and suggested using LSD to enhance the results and Putov rejected this idea since all their research indicated that remote viewing required a great deal of concentration and LSD would affect that concentration. In early 1973, another psychic joined the program named Pat Price. Price was a former police officer from Burbank, California who claimed to be able to view places, people, and objects around the world at any time. When he was initially interviewed for the project at his home, he had on the wall a world map with pins placed in it across the oceans. When asked what the pins represented, Price claimed that they were each a nuclear submarine he was tracking with his ESP abilities. Very quickly, Price proved that he had an uncanny ability to perceive places and objects in his mind, leading one CIA official to describe him in a report as extraordinarily accurate Indeed, the team's interest in Price resulted in a great deal of rivalry between him and Swan, who had been with the project since the beginning. To fully assess Price and Swan's abilities, a test was arranged where they were each given the same set of coordinates and asked to describe what was there. The coordinates led to a cabin being used by one of the researchers as a vacation spot. However, the remote viewing resulted in descriptions of a military facility It appeared as though the test was a complete failure. However, further investigation revealed this may not have been the case, for they discovered there was indeed a secret military facility not far from the vacation property that had been the initial target. Known as Sugar Grove, the facility was run by the National Security Agency and was used to gather data on Soviet radar and radio transmissions. Price's description of Sugar Grove, in particular, seemed to be unnervingly accurate and he was asked to view the site again to see just how much he could perceive. In his second viewing, he gave a number of specific details, including the psychic layout of the site, the names of some of the highly classified projects that were going on at the facility, and even seemed to gather knowledge of previous operations. However, his viewing was not 100% accurate. There were a few details of the actual facility that did not match. He also gave names of people who worked there, some of which proved to be wrong. Nevertheless, the results seemed to both excite and worry the CIA. On the one hand, they had a person who had demonstrated an ability to gather a great deal of information on a specific site with his ESP. On the other hand, it was wholly possible for their most secretive sites to be viewed by anyone with similar abilities, including Soviet psychic spies, and it was not forgotten that Soviet efforts in the field of ESP had been going on a lot longer than the American project. The CIA were therefore eager to move from research into more operational activities directed to the Soviet Union. It was important to get results in order to justify additional funding to keep the work alive. In July 1974, the CIA therefore selected a site in the Soviet Union that Price would view with his ESP. This was the first time Price had direct contact with the CIA and they gave him the coordinates of the semi test site located in modern day Kazakhstan. The site was involved in nuclear testing and had seen several overflights by CA-operated U-2 spy planes and satellites, but information regarding the site specifically was kept from him. It was decided that in order to ensure that Price was telling the truth or was accurately focusing on the site itself, he would have to identify a crane and four objects that appeared to be oil derricks. During the initial viewing session, after being given the coordinates, Price began to describe an immense crane with four large wheels in two groups of two. He went into great detail about the crane, but failed to identify the four oil derricks. Despite this, the CIA was sufficiently satisfied that Price was seeing the site with his ESP. Given the detailed description of the rather unique crane, During a follow-up, Price viewed inside the facility and described a large interior room where people were working on the assembly of giant 60-foot diameter metal spheres. He described watching them being assembled from thick metal gauze that he said were like sections of an orange peel, but the engineers were having trouble welding it all together because the pieces were warping. Of course, the problem in 1974 was that the CIA couldn't use this information without more traditional evidence to back it up. It wasn't simply that people in the agency didn't believe what Price was saying, but in previous cases, Price had made mistakes, such as with Sugar Grove, and without more traditional evidence to support him, they couldn't take what he was saying as accurate. It was made more problematic when Price was asked why he had not seen the Derricks, and he replied that they had been dismantled, but later surveillance by the CIA proved that they were still there. While as far as the CIA were concerned, the jury was still out on ESP and remote viewing. They were encouraged enough to keep working with Price, but at the cost of his relationship with the team at Stanford. Eventually he began working directly for the CIA, but it was a short-lived relationship. On July 13, 1975, Price was found dead in his hotel in Las Vegas, having died from a heart attack. Price had a history of problems with his heart, so it was not initially deemed suspicious by his family and friends. However, some within the Stanford team have claimed that his family were only notified of his death after his body had been cremated, leading to claims that his death was either faked by the CIA, or he was assassinated by the KGB. In the case of the latter scenario, researcher Tim Ravat who investigated Price's death, said it would have been a top priority for the KGB to eliminate Price, as his phenomenal remote viewing abilities would have posed a significant danger to the USSR's paranormal warfare buildup. He may have also been the victim of an elite group of Russian PSI warriors trained to remotely kill enemies of the Soviet Union. While many of us would probably scoff at such claims, it's important to know that two years later in 1977, Evidence was found that the Soviet scientists based at Semipalatinsk had been investigating energy beam technology and this involved building thick steel gauze nearly 60 feet in diameter. This came three years after Price had seen them during his viewing session and before anyone in the CIA were aware of their existence. In the early 80s, a US TV station interviewed a KGB agent who talked about assassination methods employed by Moscow one of which was to uncover any previous medical conditions the target may have and try to affect them in some way to make the death appear as natural causes. He then explained that he was directly involved in killing a psychic spy in Las Vegas. Others however believed Price was such a high value asset to the CIA that they faked his death in order to protect him from the KGB. At the hospital where Price was admitted, a mysterious man in a suit presented himself to staff and produce paperwork outlining Price's medical history before disappearing, with his family not seeing his body before it was cremated and even other remote viewers claiming to have made contact with Price or observed him working for the CIA. Many questions linger over just what happened to Pat Price in July 1975. The death of Pat Price forced the CIA to reevaluate evaluate Project Eight. The higher echelons of the agency could not dismiss the fact that Price and Swan had both demonstrated some extraordinary natural abilities that could not be easily explained away. But questions still lingered on how useful it could be given how inconsistent they were in successfully producing information. Could they, for example, conduct a field operation potentially risking American lives on data gathered from psychic spies alone? The answer was no and this conclusion essentially ended Scannate. However, research went on at Stanford, and this continued to attract attention from agencies within the U.S. government and military. The next major player in developing psychic spies for the U.S. was the U.S. Army, who had a department named rather vaguely the Systems Exploitation Team, or SET. It was established by the Army Intelligence Agency and was essentially a think tank that specializes in tackling the most unusual intelligence problems through a number of often unorthodox methods. Like the CIA before them, the Army had become concerned about reports of Soviet research into remote viewing. And so in 1977, a research project was established under the codename Project Gondola Wish it was given the task of evaluating the potential adversary applications of remote viewing. The project enlisted a number of civilian and service personnel, including Vietnam War veterans, who appeared to have some kind of ESP ability and re-enlisted the help of the Stanford Research Institute, although the Stanford team had to keep the work secret. The remote viewing sessions were carried out at the Menlo Park campus, and the civilian participants couldn't tell their employers why they were leaving their jobs during working hours. Unlike Scan8, Wish focused on specific objects, people and places, as opposed to map coordinates with a number of rudimentary viewing tests being carried out, often with household objects, such as coins being placed in certain ways, out of sight of the remote viewers. At this time, Russell Targ and Hal Putoff were claiming that anyone could harness their own ESP abilities. This attracted the attention of Major General Edmund Thompson, the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence at the Department of the Army Headquarters, who wanted to try it for himself. From his office in the Pentagon, the General attempted to find one of his staff officers who went walking out in Washington, DC with one of the Gondola Wish team. Mal Riley guided him through what to do. In his own remote viewing, the general described features that he eventually believed was the Lincoln Memorial. However, the officer had in fact gone to the Alexandria train station. It appeared a failure until the three of them returned to the train station and discovered a site that matched what Thompson had described within sight of the train station. This both demonstrated the potential and the problems with remote viewing to Thompson. The following year in 1978, Gondola Wish gave way to Project Grill Flame and was based in buildings 2560 and 2561 at Fort Meade in Maryland. Grill Flame continued to work with the team at Stanford and eventually came under the umbrella of the Defense Intelligence Agency or DIA. Ingo Swan continued working with the Stanford team throughout the 1970s, but the addition of Army Intelligence with the earlier Gondola Wish brought Chief Warrant Officer Joseph McMoneagle into the picture. Joseph had joined the Army in 1964 at the age of 18 and subsequently saw combat in the Vietnam War where he was injured in a helicopter accident. He spent much of his career working in intelligence, which led him to the Gondola Wish and subsequent Grill Flame programs, whereupon he was given the designation Remote Viewer Number One. Like Price and Swan, Joseph demonstrated extraordinary levels of perception, being able to view events all across the globe as they happened and sometimes before. During the early days of Grill Flame, the team at Fort Meade spent a lot of their time demonstrating their abilities to different departments of the government to prove whether psychic spies were a real thing or not and whether they posed a threat. During one trial, Joseph was presented with an unmarked envelope inside of which contained a black and white image of an aircraft hangar and he was asked to view what was inside. Joseph didn't know the location was part of a test by the Army, for despite there being an aircraft hangar in the picture, there was no airplane or helicopter inside, but actually a prototype tank known as the XM1, which eventually became the M1 Abrams, the current main battle tank of the US Army. Joseph began describing being at a keyboard of a computer console but as he looked around with his ESP, he saw high explosive shells before realizing he was in some kind of weapon system. He went on to produce key details of the tank's classified design, much to the surprise of the security team assigned to keep the XM-1 a secret. As the 1970s gave away to the 1980s, Joseph and the psychics in Grill Flame found themselves getting more and more involved in actual intelligence operations in an effort to prove their usefulness when 52 American hostages were taken when the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was overrun by Iranian revolutionaries. Joseph found himself searching for the hostages and establishing their condition. Despite some successes during these sessions, the majority of the time, the remote viewing failed to produce any useful results regarding the hostages. Joseph also found himself searching for Chinese nuclear weapons, during which time his fellow psychic Ingo Swan predicted a Chinese nuclear test would fail, which was later proven as correct. Perhaps Joseph's most famous operation was the search for a new Soviet nuclear submarine at the request of the National Security Agency. It began in 1981 when he was asked to view activity inside a large building somewhere in the heart of Russia. He would later say that the session was one of the most vivid he had ever undertaken, Explaining, in giant bays between the walls were what looked like cigars of different sizes, sitting in gigantic racks. One seemed older, and I felt as though it were under repair, but the other was absolutely huge, I could ever have imagined. Thick mazes of scaffolding and interlocking steel pipes were everywhere. Within these were what appeared to be two huge cylinders being welded side to side and I had an overwhelming sense that this was a submarine, a really big one, with twin hulls. Joseph's visions were met with skepticism since the size of the building made most in Western intelligence believe a new type of assault ship was under construction there. Later, however, the West learned that it was indeed a submarine, namely the Typhoon Classic Ballistic Missile Submarine, which remains the largest submarine in the world, being the size of a small World War II aircraft carrier Joseph retired from the army after 20 years of service in 1984 and was awarded the Legion of Merit for his service in the US intelligence community, but continued to work with Stanford and the America's psychic spies for another decade. In 1978, an event would occur that would prove to be America's psychic spy program's greatest success. In 1978, a Libyan pilot flying a Soviet-manufactured Tu-22 bomber tried to defect, but fearing being shot down if he tried to land in Zaire, he instead ejected, allowing the plane to fly on until it ran out of fuel and crashed. The US immediately undertook an intelligence operation to locate the aircraft in order to learn its secrets. The Tu-22 was the first supersonic bomber to enter Soviet service and was being exported to a number of potential US adversaries, so any information on it was highly sought after. The CIA conducted helicopter searches of the countryside where they spoke to locals hoping to find details of the pilotless plane's flight path, but repeatedly came up empty. The CIA even resorted to redirecting satellites in an effort to find it, but still turned up nothing. Having exhausted all traditional methods, the CIA turned to America's psychic spy network which now included a secretary by the name of Rosemary Smith. Smith was asked to locate the bomber and after appearing to go into a trance, she produced a crude map of the area surrounding where the bomber went down. Although at the time, she did not know it was in Zaire. Another of the project's psychics attempted to find the bomber and produced a remarkably similar picture. When the features drawn by Smith were applied to a map of Zaire, They located a matching area and displayed a search team who eventually found the bomber relatively intact, making it an unprecedented US intelligence success. The psychic spy's involvement was even revealed to the president, Jimmy Carter. It was always hoped there could be a repeat of the success of Rosemary Smith's bomber or Joseph's submarine. In the 1980s, the American psychic spies were being used in more and more operations, but successes were few and far between. In 1986, the US prepared to launch airstrikes against Libya, and they were asked with locating Libyan leader Colonel Gaddafi. However, he would survive the bombings unscathed. In 1988, there were attempts to locate missing US Marine Colonel William Higgins in Lebanon while he was not found by remote viewing, a description of where he was being held at the time of the sessions, did match what the psychic spies described. In the 1991 Gulf War, remote viewing attempted to locate Saddam Hussein and his chemical weapons, but failed in both. A myth surrounding the research that emerged later was that work was done into trying to kill goats using psychic powers, something that was later made the subject of the satirical movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats. However, this has largely been proven to be false and was probably confused with research into advanced hand-to-hand combat techniques based on ancient Chinese martial arts that did involve goats. During the 1980s, the project itself changed names and command three times before becoming Operation Stargate in 1991 under the Defense Intelligence Agency and which has since become the blanket term for America's ESP spying program. Then in 1995, former president Jimmy Carter was speaking at Emory University when he recounted the story of the downed TU-22 being found by psychic Rosemary Smith. This brought a spotlight on the project at a time when it was rather unwanted with the drawdown of unnecessary US defense expenditure in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union and their own ESP spying program. Within the US government, criticism ranged from the work being a waste of money to some accusing those with ESP abilities of being in league with the Antichrist. The team at Stanford, too, found themselves constantly having to fend off criticism that they were bringing the institution into disrepute. something made worse by the fact that a lot of their work with the intelligence agencies had to be classified. In 1995, the project was transferred from the DIA to the CIA, who conducted a major review of Stargate, and concluded that it had no real impact on supporting the intelligence community during the last years of the Cold War with the Soviet Union and the first half of the 1990s. This ignored Price's identity of the Gores at Russia, Smith's finding of the Tu-22, and Joseph identifying the Typhoon-class submarine before conventional intelligence had identified any of them. In all, over $20 million was spent on the program, but it should be noted that in the grand scheme of things, as far as US defense expenditure goes, this amounts to just over two-thirds of the price of a single F-15 Eagle fighter. In 2017, the CIA released almost 12 million documents concerning investigations into ESP and psychic spies. Today, ESP abilities receive little attention by the wider scientific community and remain something of a fringe topic with little in the way of hard evidence. However, can we simply dismiss Rosemary Smith finding a bomber in the middle of nowhere, or Price knowing there were 60-foot wide spheres in a Soviet laboratory? Was it luck, coincidence, or was it truly an as of yet untapped power we may all be capable of? I think it's time that we find out. If you had an ability to be able to remotely perceive stuff any place in the world, that could be an extraordinary intelligence source. We found that many individuals are able to accurately describe what's going on in distant locations. Are you saying that the work you've been doing is classified? It was a research facility. That was all that we were going to tell. them. The Russians have been spending millions of dollars investigating so-called ESP. Psychic spies. Almost a psychic arms race here. Is there any real application to this? I think remote viewing has been demonstrated over the 20 years of work that's been sponsored by the government. Producing crucial and vital intelligence to the NSA, CIA, DEA, and the Secret Service. I began to feel frightened. The KGB did a man. What's really going on here? State-sponsored assassination attempt. The CIA was lying. They wanted to kill the program. A storm brewing. This is real. I say no more secrets. Let this information out.